Coming up next, Real Israel Talk Radio, Program 21, Episode 78. After Yeshua's resurrection, he breathed with his neshama, and he said to them, Receive the soul of the Spirit, that is, Messiah's neshama, which takes us back to Genesis 2, verse 7. And the man became a breathing soul. And we don't have that when we're born into this world. We have to be given that breath. Hello, this is Avi ben Mordechai. Welcome once again to Real Israel Talk Radio. And this is program episode number 78 in our teaching series on 1 Corinthians 13, Defining Biblical Love. Today we're going to address the topic of bringing on the love, that love does not seek its own. So stay with us here on our podcast today, and we'll jump right into the material where we left off on the last podcast. With today's podcast, I'm going to continue where I left off with Leviticus, or Vayikra, chapter 19, verse 18, as it is compared to what Yeshua talked about in Matthew 22, 36 through 40. And we were talking about divine biblical love. And essentially what I was getting at is that the lessons of divine biblical love, as Paul was addressing it in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, is the concept that true love from above does not seek its own. It's not a divine love that says Yehovah is a narcissist, meaning he only has a love for himself, or an empath, meaning he has a love only for others. Rather, I think he is a generator of love, and he gives it out. That's how he works. He gives his love away. And from the previous podcasts in this series on defining biblical love, Leviticus 19.18 is not about loving yourself first so that you can then love your neighbor. In other words, if you don't love yourself, then how in the world are you going to be able to love your neighbor? You got to first have a love for yourself. Well, I got to tell you, I think that's backwards. That's not what this text is telling us in Vayikra or Leviticus 19.18. At least not as I'm reading it in the Hebrew. I am your source of love to or towards your neighbor as like to or similar unto you. And there are scholars out there who will say, now, Avi, you're getting it all wrong. The Vehafta has a grammatical construction that's called a Vav conversive. And a Vav conversive is not going to give you the kind of meaning that you're after. Well, I think there is a lot more going on in Leviticus 19.18, which is about loving your neighbor. And Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, that's the Shema and the Vehafta, and tying that all together with Yeshua's statement in Matthew twenty-two thirty-six through 40, when a scribe came to Yeshua and asked him, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the Torah, in the law? 
And I think Yeshua was saying to him, I am loving you with Yehovah, your Elohim, in all of your heart, in all of your soul, and in all of your mind. That's the very thing that we are commanded to teach our children. And then Yeshua goes on to say that this is the first and the greatest commandment, which in Hebrew is the word mitzvah. And mitzvah does not necessarily mean a commandment. It is the idea from tzav, which means a connection. That is a point where you put A and B together. One plus one. You join the two ideas, or you join the two people, or you join the two things, whatever those are. So in other words, Yeshua is saying this is the first and the greatest connection to Yehovah. That is, I am loving you with Yehovah, your Elohim, in all your heart, in all your soul, and in all your mind. And then he goes on talking about the second connection point with Yehovah is just like it. And he quotes Leviticus 19.18. And this in Hebrew is saying to me, because I am love towards or to your neighbor, that's why we are to do this love to a neighbor. Then he goes on to say, for he is the same or like unto you. So it's the love that you have been given, and you're turning it around, processing it, and then sending it back out. Just as Yeshua said, freely you have received, freely give. That's the point. Freely you have received, freely give it. Don't hold it in. You have been loved. You are being loved. You will be loved, based on the Hebrew statement, Ehie, Ashir, Ehie, that is, I was, I am, and I will be, from Exodus 3, 14-15. So therefore, with that kind of love, past, present, and future, we are therefore to turn it around and send it back out because we have freely received it. Therefore, we should freely give it. And this was the lesson from 1 John four nineteen. We love him because he first loved us. This is the idea that Yeshua was getting at. Now, when Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 13.5, love does not seek its own. I don't think this is speaking towards being some kind of a narcissist or crossing the line and getting stuck in narcissism as though to say, love is not being a narcissist. No, I don't think that's what it's dealing with at all. I think the idea that Paul is getting at is that divine love is more about how one perceives oneself at the expense of others, nor is love speaking to being an empath, meaning one is concerned more about how we perceive the needs of others all at the expense of our own needs. I don't think either one of those are true, not in the least. Rather, I think Paul was addressing the principle of Leviticus 19.18, that is, Jehovah is loving us because he said, I am love to or towards your neighbor. 
Again, as I said, in the same way that I am love to you. Therefore, Yehovah is commanding us or connecting to us as redeemed souls through Messiah Yeshua to first receive the love that he has for us. And then with this, we are able to give out this same love towards others. So if you don't receive the love of Yehovah into you, it is impossible to be able to love others because you have not yet received his love unto you. And this, I think, is the real foundation for what Yeshua said in John 13, 12 through 13 and John 15, 12. So let's take a look at these two passages, please. John 13, 13 through 15. You call me teacher and master, that's Yeshua speaking, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your master and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. So here's the example. Therefore, in John 15, 12 through 13, The teaching concept continues when Yeshua says, this is my mitzvah, or this is my connection point to Yehovah, from the Hebrew word tzavva, or tzav, that is to connect or join A with B, or this thing with that thing. It's a joining idea. This is my connection point or my joining issue that you love one another as I have loved you and as I am loving you and as I will be loving you. It can work in all three tenses. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Now this said, let's now take a closer look at 1 Corinthians 13.5 where Paul writes that love does not seek its own. And this is how it appears in the redacted Greek text. The Greek terminology behind this English phrase, love does not seek its own. That idea in Greek means to criticize someone's thoughts and actions for the purpose of looking for proof of some wrongdoing or bad thinking. What in the world does that mean? Well, I want to give you something to think about here and to consider this point. Over my many years in doing this kind of work, I have often seen that we appoint ourselves in the body of Messiah to be official thought police for one another in order to investigate or examine, or consider, and even to act as judge and jury to deliberate over matters that we hear or see in the body of Messiah. These are things that can and often will bring about division, and actually it's really kind of like inviting ourselves into someone else's matter in order to make their business our business. We have an English word for it. It's called meddling. Now, taken from the Greek text of 1 Corinthians 13, 5, 
The idea of Yah's giving love is that of bringing about restoration and not judgment. I don't think he's out there trying to chase us all down, looking to bring a judgment on us and to whack us into next week because we failed to do this or that thing. I don't think so. And I think Paul would be on board with that kind of idea. I think here Paul is telling us that divine biblical love does not go about looking for opportunities to become a busybody or a meddler. And certainly Yehovah is not a Torah terrorist to the end that maybe he can find a justification to nitpick at every little thing that one of his children might be saying or doing. And I don't think Yehovah is doing that with us. And I don't think we should be doing that with each other. Perhaps we have a little bit of extra time on our hands, and therefore we go about looking for opportunities to become busybodies or meddlers in other people's business, or perhaps we consider ourselves to be uh, justified thought police or even Torah terrorists, all to the end that we are looking for justifications to nitpick at every little thing that fellow believers in the body of Messiah are doing, are saying, are thinking, and then we end up judging it because it doesn't appear to line up with what we might understand to be proper thoughts and proper behaviors in a scripture. So consider the following lessons from the principle that true love does not seek out a favorite pastime of nitpicking. And I don't think it's out there looking for inspection opportunities in and among our family and the household of faith. That's kind of my paraphrase. Doing so, I think, is much like what Yeshua addressed concerning wolves that are among the sheep, such as in this next statement from Paul as he wrote in Galatians 2, 4 through 6. False brethren secretly brought in, or those who came in by stealth, to spy out our liberty, which we have in Messiah Yeshua, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. The truth of the gospel is that Yeshua died and resurrected for us in our miserable, pointless, smelly condition. We did nothing to deserve what he did for us. And so we are made justified by our trust and faith in him, plain and simple. That is the simplicity of the gospel, as opposed to others out there, many religions in fact, that are very, very busy making their followers busy. Many, many religious teachers and leaders out there who represent very large religious teachings and denominations out there, they're out there running around making all of their followers into little images of the ones who are manipulating and controlling them. So we go on in Galatians 2, but from those who seemed to be something, whatever they were, Paul says, 
It makes no difference to me. He doesn't care. God shows personal favoritism to no man. From the Hebrew, that would mean Yehovah Elohim, or God. He does not regard faces. He doesn't say, well, you're okay, and you're not, because you're more holy than that person. You're better than that person. No, he doesn't do that. So Shaul, or Paul says, for those who seemed to be something, just added nothing to me. And there is also this statement from Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 13. He says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Master Yeshua HaMashiach, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. That's a unity issue not a uniformity issue. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. And he goes on to say that each of you is saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Kepha, I'm of Messiah. I mean, how many of us do that kind of stuff? Well, I follow Avi ben Mordechai. No, you don't. You follow Yeshua. Don't follow me. And don't look around trying to make yourself a teacher. That's what Judaism does. That's the whole basis of Judaism. Find yourself a teacher. Well, duh. The reason they have to find themselves a teacher is because they don't have the teacher. They don't have Messiah. That's why they got to find themselves a teacher. But we already have a teacher. That is Messiah, Yeshua. And the word that he gave and that has been transmitted down line to all of us, that should be good enough as it's connected to all of the Hebrew scriptures from Genesis to Second Chronicles. All of it combined should be good enough for us. So we need to stop identifying ourselves with some great teacher, some magnificent scholar, some this or that. You know, it's good enough just to say, I'm of Messiah. So Shaul says, is Messiah divided? Well, of course the answer is no. Was Paul crucified for you? Of course the answer is no. And then he says, were you immersed in the name of Paul? Well, of course the answer is no. So therefore, why are we attaching ourselves one to another as though there is somebody more important than the next guy? or the next man, or the next woman, or the next person, or the next scholar? Why are we elevating people out there to be more important than everyone else? That is just absolute nonsense, and we need to stop it. Messiah is not divided. We have one teacher, one master, one lesson, one spirit, one gospel, one teaching. Let's walk in that stuff as Yeshua gave it to us. We're all brothers. We're all sisters. There is no one better or worse in this body of Messiah, one to another. We're all helping one another by bringing our gifts to the table, and we all eat from each other and help each other to understand what is going on in the true texts of the Word. So the true model of love from above in 
the kingdom of heaven is once again that of giving to rebuild and restore broken relationships. This is the kind of love that is worth pursuing. This is the idea that Paul was driving at in 1 Corinthians 13.5 in saying that biblical divine love does not seek its own. This is something that Shaul fully understood quite well as he wrote about it once again, quoting Philippians 2, 1-4. If there is any consolation in Messiah, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, he says, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, that's all that unity stuff, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Put another way, building your own kingdom on earth. Don't do it. Don't fall prey to that. But in a lowliness of mind, the dal principle in Hebrew, dal is lowliness. It does not mean you're permitting people to walk all over you. It means you're treating others as more important than yourself. You're esteeming others better than yourself. That is the idea that Yeshua taught. If you want to be great in Elohim's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. So Shaul says, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And also, he makes this point in Galatians 6, 1 through 5, and also verse 10. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. It doesn't say go ahead and lower the hammer down on them and beat them up and bully them because they aren't doing what they should be doing. Rather, he says, bear one another's burdens. And the better way to say that from the Hebrew text would be to lift up one another's burdens, lift it up off of them, and so fulfill the law of Messiah. That's the giving kind of love that Yeshua and Mashiach had for us. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load, or each one shall lift up his own load. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do the good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Therefore, I will be there for you if you have a need, rather than look to my own needs first and manipulate you into giving to me. Otherwise, I'm not going to be a happy camper. <laughs> okay? So from all this, we learn about divine biblical love based on two Hebrew words that you can become familiar with, lidrosh and levakesh. Now, lidrosh is a term that means to search something out, to investigate. And in the case of Yehovah's love, it's always to look for the good of the person and not 
to be critical and pointing some finger at everyone else because they're just not able to make the grade to live up to whatever it is that one or more people are demanding that they live up to. That's lidrosh. And the next word is levakesh, to look or to find something or to discover something. If we have any attorneys listening to this program, we would call that discovery. Levakesh. You're looking to find or discover something in order to build a case. Now, when we come back after our break, in the case of Yehovah's love for us, we're going to look at several passages, okay? I'm Avi Ben Mordechai on Real Israel Talk Radio. Stay with us. We'll be back. You're listening to Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio, Program 21, Episode 78. Welcome back to the podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio. Once again, here's your host, Avi Ben-Mordechai. Okay, we're back on the air, and this is Avi Ben-Mordechai, and you're listening to Real Israel Talk Radio. Okay, before the break, we were discussing Galatians 6, 1 through 5, and verse 10, about our responsibilities to bear and lift up one another's burdens and fulfill Messiah's law, which is that you are more important than I am. Therefore, I will be there for you if you have a need, rather than look to my own needs first and manipulate you into giving to me, otherwise I'm not going to be a happy camper, okay? In the case of Yehovah's love for us, we learn about divine biblical love based on two Hebrew words, lidrosh and levakesh. Lidrosh means to investigate, and levakesh means discovery. We're going to look at several passages, okay? Devarim, Deuteronomy 1, 32-33. This is Moses speaking to the congregation. You did not believe or trust Jehovah your Elohim, who went in the way before you to search out a place for you to pitch your tents to show you the way that you should go in the fire by night and in the cloud by day. So in Devarim 1.32-33, we have Jehovah searching out a place for us to give us rest. Let's go to Job, or Eov, 13.9. The question is asked, will it be well when he searches you out? Or can you mock him as one mocks a man? He will surely rebuke you if you secretly show partiality. In Eov, or Job, 13.9, there we have Yehovah speaking about searching us out to teach us that he is not a racist and he does not show partiality to someone's face or character or learning or their pedigree or whoever they are. How about Ezekiel 34, 11 through 12? For thus says Jehovah Elohim, but thus says Adonai Jehovah, indeed I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out as a shepherd 
seeks out his flock on the day he is among his scattered sheep, so I will seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy and a dark day. And in Ezekiel 34, 11 through 12, we learn that Jehovah takes great care to search for his lost and wayward sheep. He's looking to restore them. Let's go to Romans 8, 27. Now, he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the holy ones according to the will of Elohim, or the will of God. So he is out searching our minds and to bring our minds into unity with his mind. That, again, is something that is restorative, not judgmental. Let's go to Hebrews 4.12. For the word of Elohim, the word of God, is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit. The idea here would be nephesh or spirit, and neshama or soul. And this statement about the nephesh and the neshama, or if you will, the spirit and soul is spoken about in John 20, 22. After Yeshua's resurrection, when he came to his disciples, it says that when he was with them, he breathed on them. That's with his neshama, that is the soul of Messiah. He breathed on them. That is the breath of the Holy Spirit. Receive it. But he had to breathe on them, which takes us right back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. When Jehovah created and formed Adam from the dust of the ground, what did he do? The statement from the Hebrew says that he took the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils and the breath of life, that is Messiah's neshama, it came into Adam, and it says, and the man became a nephesh hayah, a breathing soul. So the neshama is the conduit that brings forth the breathing nephesh of life in a man. So the neshama is first, the nephesh comes second. The nephesh is our breathing life. You know, that, <sighs> but the neshama is something above and beyond that. That's a spiritual function, and we don't have that when we're born into this world. We don't have it. We have to be given that breath, but it's a spiritual breath is what we're talking about. So that's why we read in John 20, 22, after Yeshua's resurrection, he breathed on them. That is, he gave them the messianic Neshama, and he said, receive the nephesh of the Holy Spirit. That is, the breath life of the Spirit. That's what he was saying. So going back to Hebrews 4.12, where it says, the word of Elohim, or the word of God, is living and powerful, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, because that is the breath life that Yeshua breathed onto his disciples after his resurrection. And this combination of these two aspects of the redemption, this is what is able to be a discerner of the thoughts and intents 
of the heart. So he's always out there seeking to restore us and not to judge us because the judgment will be done in Yeshua. And that's why he said, I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world, according to John chapter 12. Now let's go to Yahu or Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13. So these are the words of Yehovah to the prophet Yahu or Jeremiah. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says Yehovah, thoughts of shalom and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray unto me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me and find me, and when you search for me with all your heart. So again, he's using restorative power and judgment power through Yeshua, who is nailed to that crucifixion tree and then goes into death and comes out of the second death on the third day resurrection, that we're going to also go into that with him by our faith. And therefore, we become a new man in Messiah. That's what we become. Therefore, this is restorative. Everything that he's doing with us is restorative because the judgment has already taken place through Yeshua. So he's not going to subject us to a double jeopardy where we get judged and then we get judged again. No, not at all. We are given the judgment of Messiah because that is being put on Yeshua according to teachings such as Isaiah chapter 53. So this is the understanding that I have about love that does not seek its own from 1 Corinthians 13.5. And I will hope that you can understand what it is that Yehovah has done for you and what he wants to give to you. Let us now go on to 1 Corinthians 13.6. True love does not provoke. So I have to ask, what is this supposed to mean? In the Greek language, the idea means to call out to someone to come forward, oftentimes in a hostile sense, in order to provoke or challenge an opponent to a duel. Have you ever seen those old Western movies and they have a duel that they're going to shoot one another, right? That they're going to point a pistol at each other and see who is going to come out standing and who is going to come out dead. And they've had these similar ideas over a man's honor in the medieval times of England and Europe, where if you dissed another man and dishonored him in some particular way in front of others, you could be called out to a duel where each of you walk 10 or 20 paces, turn around and shoot. And from that, you determine one who is left standing and one who is left dead. Well, that's the idea here in this Greek for the term true love does not provoke, meaning Jehovah's love for us is never given to us in any kind of a hostile sense in order to manipulate or to provoke or to force us into making a decision to honor him 
because we dishonored him. It's not in any way looking to challenge an opponent to a duel as though Yehovah were saying to us, Well, you've really chapped my hide. Or as Clint Eastwood might say, Go ahead, make my day. I challenge you to a duel, says Yehovah. Pick your pistol. Each of us go back 10 steps and turn around and shoot. And we'll see who comes out winning and who comes out dead. No, it doesn't work that way. He doesn't provoke that way. So the Greek word here is fundamentally describing one who seeks to control another person or one who seeks to challenge or manipulate a situation for whatever reason. And there are those out there who often thrive on taking away free will and thrive on taking away your power of choice. But when it comes to giving free will and or free choice, we demand it for ourselves, but we will not give it to others. Oh, that's what usually happens. And he's saying, no, that's not the way my program works. Jehovah gives us free will and free choice, and we turn around and we must learn to give others the same courtesy. So in the Hebrew language, the idea behind this is the term ketsef. That's kuf tzadife. And this will generally give us an idea that means to break something off or maybe to shatter something or to oppress something or someone. That's the idea of this provoking idea. It's challenging and cutting someone off or something off in order to cut them down, pluck them off, to shatter them, to oppress them, to destroy them, to kill them, to break it off, that kind of idea. Can we think of any real-world situations wherein we give ourselves permission to effectively challenge an opponent to a duel or perhaps to break off or to cut down or destroy or shatter someone in order to outdo them, you know, maybe even physically, emotionally, intellectually, and or even spiritually? Are we out there looking for opportunities to outdo one another? My sword is sharper than your sword. My knowledge is greater than your knowledge. My wisdom is bigger and better than your wisdom. I know more. You don't know anything. I have two PhDs behind my name. You've got nothing. You're stupid. Well, we won't say it that way, but we think it. Do we do stuff like that? Those are real-world situations. I've experienced those things myself, not only as the victim, but even as the perpetrator of these things. Oh, yeah, I've done it. You bet. Am I proud of it? No, not at all. I've asked Jehovah to forgive me many, many times. Because after all, I come from a Jewish home. Mother and father, Jewish. A whole long, long pedigree of great rabbis and scholars in Eastern Europe. You don't think I have something to boast about if I want? I probably could, but I'm not going to. 
because it all means absolutely nothing to me. In Messiah, that's all that really matters to me. But many of us have run into situations where someone says, I don't agree with you. Or, I don't think that that's the right way. We then ask them, why not? Sometimes people respond by becoming irate and very defensive. And they kick into high gear with the blowback of a king or a queen of mean. Oh, I'm telling you, it's real. And you, listening to the sound of my voice, I know you know it. Because you have likely come across the same thing in your life. And maybe not even as the victim, maybe you yourself have even done it to others. Maybe you have bullied someone else because you have got some great learning behind your name. I don't know, but if you have, you need to come before Jehovah and say, I'm sorry, forgive me. So who is a controlling person? It's someone who needs to have their way or the highway. It's never ever for the good of the one who happens to be taking our abuse or our bullying. Now, it has been my experience that we are not usually bent on bullying people because that is not the redeemed nature. But our flesh is very powerful and persuading, and control is always in the interest of the one who wants to be in control. But we are to be serving one another, not telling each other, You suck! (laughs) What a stupid moron! Wait a minute, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm the one that studies all the time. And then we say, I'm challenging you to a sword fight. Well, in this case, it would be challenging you to a duel. And we turn around, we walk 10 paces in the opposite direction, and and in the end, there'll be one dead or damaged from the duel or sword fight. And there's the loser and the one who remains proud and strong, he ends up becoming the winner. And you see, this is not Yah's way. So I'm encouraging you, and even speaking the same words back to me, again, this is not Yah's way. Don't let your flesh get in the way of this kind of thing. We are to serve one another with the knowledge and gifts and wisdom that we have. So this brings me to some concluding thoughts regarding provocations in order to make ourselves look good and sound good and feel good at the expense of a family member in this household of faith in Yeshua HaMashiach. So what are the signs of provocation? I think really it starts with the principle, it is not mine to take, it is yours to give. I'll repeat that. It is not mine to take. It is yours to give. Or I think it could be better understood by the words of Yaakov or James, beginning with chapter 4, verse 1. Where do wars or battles or fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. 
and you ask and do not receive, because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. Elohim, or God, resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then in verse 10, he says, Humble yourselves in the sight of Jehovah, and he will lift you up. Then verse 11, Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law or the Torah and judges the Torah. But if you judge the Torah, you're not a doer of the Torah, but you're a judge of the Torah. And he has a lot more to say about that kind of stuff. So in a paraphrase, I would say from Yaakov or James 4.2, you lust for wanting to be recognized and you want people to validate that you're a smart one, a wise old owl, and you just know all kinds of things. And because you don't have, you lust for it. So you murder and covet and bully, and speak bad things against other people who have gifts to bring to the table in this body of Messiah and want to present things, but because you don't have, you're going to pick a fight and you're going to war with people around you or even with the person who happens to have something that they would like to share with you. And I believe we can learn from each other but we do not have because we do not ask. And that is referring to the wisdom that we have from above. So these signs of provocation that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 13 is the judgment of being bossy. You want to teach and judge others and put them in their place because you have some desire to be important or validated. Also, there's this wrath of disagreeing with one another. And in some disagreements, there will be words exchanged. And sometimes not even words. You're just thinking it, and it leaks out of you, calling fellow believers evil or stupid or morons. I can tell you disagreements are healthy, and there are ways to disagree with each other that is a benefit to one another but not when we push our views on another and say, it's my way or the highway. It's also the irritation regarding provocations that someone may want to give as some advice, but our pride doesn't allow us to take it. And I've seen plenty of this, that controlling people will follow up after they give you some advice. And if you decline the advice... Well, they just get mad and they say, why do I waste my time giving you advice if you're not going to take it? The principal lesson that I've had to learn about true biblical love and giving is once again this principle. It is not mine to take. It is yours to give. Therefore, if we can learn to stop taking away the choice belonging to others, then we will not fall into that pattern of provoking one another. Because provoking is just another way of saying, I'm going to take what you have 
and not give you the choice to decide if you want to give it or not. So it all comes down to giving each one enough room to make their own free choices. And in those free choices, we benefit and serve one another. Within our biblical worldview, we are not in competition with each other. We are here to build each other up. So I think of Paul's interesting statement from Romans 14, 10 through 13. But why do you judge your brother? Why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand or be presented before the judgment seat of Messiah. And so then let each of us give an account of himself to Elohim. And for me, I want to give an account of who I am in Messiah. Whatever it is that I want to puff myself up with, it's considered dung. It's refuse. It's excrement. It means nothing. All that I want to have and know and love is that of what Messiah has done for me. Now, I've come to the end of the program today. It went fast. And on the next podcast, we'll continue. So in the meantime, go to my website at www.cominghome.co.il. Thanks so much for being with me here on this podcast, episode 78, on this idea of defining biblical love. We'll come back on the next program and continue where we left off. Take care of yourselves. Have a great week. I'm Avi ben Mordechai, and you're listening to Real Israel Talk Radio.